This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. From the newsroom of the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. 何老师您好，我是华盛顿邮报记者施嘉欣。Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, June nineteenth. Today, two histories that many Americans don't know: the massacre in Tulsa, and why we celebrate Juneteenth. From May 31st to June 1st, 1921, 99 years ago, a 35-block portion of the city called Greenwood, Tulsa, was basically wiped off the map. Greenwood was very well known at that time because it was called the Black Wall Street. It was an extremely prosperous community. Tulsa was a boom town because of oil. It was an area where the black community had created thriving businesses, and there was some resentment about that because people were living quite well, living better than many white families were in the area. And then what happened over those two days is something that is hard. To imagine, from what I heard from my ancestors, is that they couldn't really talk about what happened, or they kind of feared if they talked about it, they would get killed or something. My name is Ian Hubbard. I am 20 years old, and I live in Kansas City. I am from Kansas City, but most of my family is from Oklahoma on my father's side. Some of them live in a little place called No Water, Oklahoma, but most of my family moved out that small town and now lives in Tulsa. My name is Michelle Norris. I'm a contributing columnist for the Washington Post, and I am the founding director of the Race Card Project. It began with an encounter with a black man and a white woman in an elevator. Someone made this lie that this white person got injured by this black person who was living in the Black Wall Street. Whatever happened on that elevator kept getting exaggerated and exaggerated and exaggerated to the point that the black man was arrested, was placed in jail. A mob formed outside the jail, and so a bunch of these white people got mad and started just tearing down this town, and they. Think that the government or someone had some type of input with it because planes were dropping bombs on people. People were individually attacked. Businesses were burned. Ordnance and burning balls of turpentine rained down from the sky. In my family, they hit out, almost got killed. But this one family that they knew, this one black family they knew, took them in and hid them where they were hiding. So, why did you decide to do a deep dive into the history of the Tulsa massacre? When I heard that the president was planning to visit Tulsa on Juneteenth, I thought that was ironic, and ironic is probably too small a word. And I wondered、hmm. um, whether they understood the collision on the calendar, or whether that was. Sardonic, or whether it was meant to send a message, and I wanted to write about Tulsa because I thought if 
they're going to do this. And they did, we know now that they've changed the date. So they're visiting the day after Juneteenth. But if they're going to do this, if this administration with its history of racial insensitivity is going to visit a city like Tulsa with its tortured history around race, then let's talk about this. Let's use this as an opportunity to educate people about an event that a lot of Americans still don't know about. And that's the problem, right, is that when you talk about the tortured history of of this city when it comes to race, so many people don't even know that that tortured history exists. They still don't know how many people died. They still have not been able to quantify the, the loss of income, the loss of property. And it's hard to put that together because the history was expunged. There was actually a concerted effort to erase the history. And that's changed. The city of Tulsa has leaned into this now, is trying to understand that history, is trying to find where the bodies were buried. But for years, newspaper archives were removed, police logs were removed. So it's been very hard for historians to go back and piece together what happened. And what effect did this event have on Black people who were living in Tulsa at the time or living in that neighborhood? Well, the neighborhood was wiped out. One of the few buildings that survived is a church. It is still there today. Um, It is uh, still thriving today. Some of the people took refuge in the church basement. I've actually visited that church. I've, I've been to Tulsa and visited Greenwood. Immediately afterwards, Black families were rounded up and they were taken to an internment camp. Estimates are uh, that around 300 people may have been killed, but again, these are only estimates because they don't know where the bodies were buried. There are firsthand accounts of people describing trucks with bodies stacked up on the back of the trucks moving through town to you know some unknown point. The families that were interred and there were thousands of them, they were there in some cases for days. The only way that you could get released is if someone vouched for you and that person had to be white. Hmm. So a white person had to come and vouch for a black person or a black family. And then when they were released, they had to wear a green tag to show that they were approved in some way by some member of white society. So this is it, this is a very dark moment, a moment where that city lost its way, you know, that that reminds you of in Europe of people having to wear gold stars. I didn't know that. That's the first thing I thought of. And and you kind of explained why it is that there isn't a wider understanding of what happened in Tulsa and the fact that that's a product of conscious efforts to erase some of that history. But still, I mean, what do you think it says that so many Americans have never heard about this before, that this just isn't considered a part of our history, that we ensure that every elementary and middle schooler finishes school knowing? Well, and it didn't just happen in Tulsa. There was a similar raid in Rosewood, Florida. That is better known because there was a film made about Rosewood. It happened in Springfield, Illinois. It happened in Elaine, Arkansas. It happened in several places and usually where Black ambition and Black success was met with mob rule. People resented that success. You ask why we don't know about this. It's a difficult history. We don't talk about the origins of really the, we don't talk about slavery very much. And we certainly don't talk about what came after slavery. And 
I think it's because people can't figure out how to tell that story without kicking up a lot of guilt, Mm -hmm. without kicking up a lot of pain. And not to dismiss this in any way, but how to tell a story as profound and as huge as that in a textbook where you might only be able to dedicate one page to it. As difficult as it is, I say we need to figure that out. I think that since the president has decided to visit Tulsa at this moment of tumult in America and really around the world, let's use that as an opportunity to have a discussion about Tulsa and to make sure that that discussion has a long tail And so it finds its way into our curriculum, that it finds its way into our history books. Not necessarily to bring shame to Tulsa, that is not the intent, or really to bring shame to America, but to understand how we got to this point and how we can move forward with resolve and strength. And I think that we've we've had a hard time reaching for something that feels like reconciliation in this country because we have not first sat down and absorbed the hard truths in this country. And if you look at what has happened in other countries that have been able to deal more, I don't want to say successfully, but more boldly with a difficult past, and I would include on that list Germany, I would include on that list South Africa, it's because they've combined truth and reconciliation and tried to make sure that those two things work on twin tracks. Michelle Norris is an opinion writer for The Post. My name is Nicole Ellis, and I'm a video reporter for The Post. I'm originally from Houston, Texas, and I'm also from Third Ward, where George Floyd is from. And I was thinking about stories that I could tell that would be relevant to this moment, and Juneteenth just kept coming up. What do you mean by that? I guess so much of how we deal with race in America stems from slavery. And it also seems like people are open to looking to the past for answers for how we got here. So Juneteenth is a reference to June 19th, 1865, when General Gordon Granger, a Union soldier and war hero, basically arrived on the shores of Galveston, Texas, with 2,000 troops and effectively stops the cotton trade from the port of Galveston in Texas and writes these five orders and Specifically, Order 3 talks about slavery and the abolishment of slavery and that now slaves and slave owners are equal. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves and the connection hereto existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. The freedmen are advised to remain at their present homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and they will not be supported in idleness, either there or elsewhere. And that's 
really kind of like the ethos of Juneteenth. It's the day that slaves in Texas learned that they were free two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. Because I think that's a thing that so many people miss in their history lessons, right? Like we think of the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln signed this thing, and then all the slaves were freed. But that, of course, is not the case because the Confederacy didn't follow the Emancipation Proclamation. So there were a lot of states where enslaved people ended up continuing to be enslaved for a long period after that. Right. And even well after 1865, there's still records of people being enslaved in other parts of America. So Juneteenth is this big moment in Texas, and it's since spread nationally to be this sort of commemoration of freedom, but also it kind of illuminates this sense of awareness of delayed freedom, of how democracy and this process of gaining equality isn't blanket and doesn't happen overnight. So you went to Galveston to do some reporting on this story. Why did you decide to go there and who did you talk to when you went? So tell me a little bit about Pier 21. We went to Pier 21. Well, Pier 21 and all the piers... Which is where Gordon Granger would have docked. And I met with Hank Theory, who is a former board member of the Galveston Historical Foundation. If you're going to have a discussion about Juneteenth, you must have a discussion about Major General Gordon Granger. General Granger, he got to Galveston on June 17th and doesn't disembark until the 19th after he's kind of taken his time to write out these orders. What would it mean for a hardened military general to write in enforcement of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation that you, the freed slaves had absolute equality to their slave owners. Think about that. They had personal rights and rights to property. He wrote that. Those were his words in reference to freed African-American slaves, black slaves who here in this country had not been freed as it relates to the state of Texas. And General Order 3 is what Juneteenth is all about. To say to them, you are equal to that of your slave owner. And it's applicable on June 19th, 1865. It's applicable on June 19th, 2020. It's the same message. So how are we going to remember? So it's a little bit of a different statement than the Emancipation Proclamation. It's it's not encouraging people to join the Union Army or to to do anything but get a job, basically. Get a job, figure out life here. We'll support you in that. We won't support you in anything else. So so what do you think was your big takeaway from hearing about that history from theory? You know, so much of history is open to interpretation and context. And if you learn you're free, you really have, you've never had rights before. You, you don't have money. In many ways, you know, it's liberating and it's something to celebrate and it's really exciting, but you're still financially dependent on on others in some cases, and financially dependent in a new way on the people who enslaved you in some cases. And I'm wondering how that that history and that legacy plays out for people who are descendants of the people who were actually there to hear this big announcement about emancipation. Yeah, I talk with this woman. Her name's Naomi Carrier. I'm an educator, historian, and a performing artist. 
for historical reenactments. She knows where her great-great-grandmother, Hannah, was on Juneteenth. She was in Sweet Home, Texas, and uh, she was owned by a family, the West family in Sweet Home. You know, school teachers always have stuff. This is Hannah, who was purchased in the deep woods as the Washington West family was crossing the Mississippi River, holding a mulatto baby at the age of 14 with a sign that said for sale around her neck. And she traces her roots all the way back there. She knows when her great-great-grandmother was purchased. I can say that when she was purchased by Mary Willauer West, whom I never knew but have respect for, who, who got down out of the wagon and told her husband, I want you to buy that girl. She was being sold, uh, possibly because she had been raped by a white master who uh, caused her to have a mulatto baby, and maybe his wife didn't want her anymore. In her situation, um, she decided to stay. She stayed on with the family that used to own her, and instead of taking care of their kids and providing for them, for free, she continued to stay there for wages, and her family and her descendants didn't leave there until 1913. And and what did she say about what Juneteenth means to her and to her family? I think for Naomi, she's really emotional about it. In Texas, the enslaved people were not allowed to practice their freedom until June 19, 1865. And people will say, well, maybe they didn't get the, the news in time. Well, why were they late? They were late specifically because the planters needed to get another crop in the ground, and they did do that by Juneteenth. In fact, Abraham Lincoln had already been assassinated by the time the slaves in Texas were freed. For her, it's about the days and weeks afterwards as this message spread and as people scrambled to figure out how to pursue freedom and how to pursue happiness. This is what we leave to future generations, how we connect them to our ancestors' past, into the new world, the, the battlefield with some ammunition. This old order is not the world I want to live in. It's not the world I want to live in. It's not the world I want to bring my children up in, so I'm going to change it. And before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave because slavery is not dead. So, so I think these, these stories and these really tough questions embody a lot of what makes Juneteenth so powerful as a holiday, right? Because it is a holiday about pain and suffering and struggle, but also about the efforts to overcome that pain and to move past it or to find joy despite it. And it's really complicated. And I'm wondering how you think that squares with the fact that Juneteenth is now becoming known nationally and is now becoming like a, that in the effort to communicate more widely about what this holiday is and where it comes from and what it means and why it's important to celebrate, that in some ways that narrative kind of gets flattened. One of the things that has come up so much in the interviews that I've done has been education, that Juneteenth, you know, even in Texas, it's not a huge part of history. 
Many people got an understanding of Juneteenth as an adult because the idea of Juneteenth as a child was difficult because it was not taught in school. Earlier this year, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee passed a bill with Senator Cornyn that is the first step in making the Emancipation Trail into a national park or a national trail. It would go from Galveston um, through Texas and up to Emancipation Park in Houston, Texas. I think it will be the right trail to have if America gets to the point of cleansing her soul and really breaking away from racism and racist actions and tendency and words that the community as a whole experiences. A big part of her motivation for that is to make Juneteenth and the lives of the people that were changed that day and the kind of experience of delayed freedom a national conversation. You know, I think the nation needs to cry. I think we need to weep. This looms looms very large in not our healing but our transformation. It is crucial that we leap into another era. Uh, And as we do so, uh, we have to be able to freely say racism. Uh, We've banished people who say it. Uh, We've told them to get over it. Uh, We've said it doesn't exist. And it does. Juneteenth, you know, even in Texas, it's not a huge part of history. It's a big part of Black culture here. And as a Black Texan, I grew up celebrating Juneteenth, but it just, it's got a weird vibe now that everyone's talking about Juneteenth, but doesn't necessarily have the context. And I think that that's a byproduct of not really taking full stock of the role slavery and emancipation have played in the world we live in today, in the America that we live in today. So I think, you know, Juneteenth is an opportunity and an invitation for for people to revisit that history and have more open conversations about it. Nicole Ellis is a video reporter for The Post. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. It's a challenging time for small businesses in communities across the country. Facebook's Business Resource Hub offers free tools to help you manage your business, support your customers and employees, and connect with other business owners who are facing similar challenges. From information on how to bring your business online to setting up a customer service plan, Facebook's Business Resource Hub has you covered. Learn more at facebook.com slash resource. That's facebook.com slash resource. And now one more thing. So I am from Texas, the greatest place on earth. And the neighborhood I grew up in in Missouri City is a slave plantation. My name is Taylor Turner, and I'm a video producer at The Washington Post. So Juneteenth, growing up, it has always been a holiday for my family. 
At a young age, I learned that Juneteenth was a day that slaves found out that in Texas that they were free. And this was like, two years after uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. My granny has four kids, and so we all live like in the suburbs, and we will choose one family's house to go over and celebrate Juneteenth. And it's just like a time for all of us to get together and celebrate. And in Missouri City, where I grew up, Juneteenth is a celebration over a couple of days sometimes. So that involves parades, live music, uh, food. And growing up, was your understanding of this holiday like, oh, this is just time that I get to spend with my family and we eat great food and we have fun together. And it's like any other holiday where you just basically have an excuse to gather with the people that you love. Or do you feel like the symbolism of it was something that you understood growing up and the kind of historic importance? So growing up, it was always, first and foremost, knowing the historic importance of the holiday. and. The way we celebrate that was in a way that like our family, ancestors, Black people as a whole have like made joy out of suffering and sorrow Mm. or like made joy out of pain. And so part of that joy is just being around your family and having that time to fellowship and just have visual representations of achievement. So you talked to your grandma about what it was like to grow up celebrating Juneteenth. What did she have to say? So when I think about Juneteenth and I celebrate it here in D.C., I call my granny oftentimes. Okay, my name is Bobby Ray Franklin Johnson. You still go, you go by a hyphen last name, granny? My granny is 76 now, and so a lot of how my family celebrates Juneteenth comes from my granny's experiences. Do you remember, like, how it felt to celebrate Juneteenth and, like, what what that celebration meant to y'all? Oh, that was a, that, we would look forward to the 19th of June every year, because, you know, we would have such a good time, and it, it was kind of something like Christmas. We would just we would just love the 19th of June because we'd get. She grew up um, in a family of sharecroppers. Uh, she was one of 14 kids, and so they would pick cotton and pecans and corn um, well into September, November, into the school year. We lived on this here farm, and we would work for these people, you know, and we would have to give them half of everything that we, you know, produced. Did they ever say anything to y'all about Juneteenth? Oh, no, no, no. They just, they, you know, this was the day that they said that we were free. <laughs> That's what they, and they was, you know, doing this, you know, for, you know, for our freedom. Uh, mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> it feels like there's been growing national awareness about Juneteenth for the last few years. But especially this year, obviously, that that suddenly you have a lot of companies announcing that they're giving everyone Juneteenth off and that it's becoming part of a more urgent national conversation. How does that feel for someone who has grown up celebrating this? It feels nice to know that it's being acknowledged, but it falls short when people don't understand the importance behind the holiday or the history behind it and just see it as another day off. Taylor Turner is a video producer for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. 
Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Renny Svernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The post-director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. We know it's a challenging time for small businesses across the country. Facebook's Business Resource Hub offers free tools to help manage your business, support your customers and employees, and connect with other business owners who are facing similar challenges. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters? And why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now. Available now.